Hi, I'm Jason. This is Filmography Club. You know who it is. You know what it is. You read that description, so you know we're talking about Raising Arizona today, which is great news for me because Raising Arizona is one of my all-time favorites. We're not talking about it because it's one of my favorites, though. We're talking about it because it's one of Jamie Bradley's favorites, and Jamie Bradley is my guest today. She's the co-host of Hot Minute. That's hot with two T's, the thirstiest podcast in the game. She's clever. She's smart. She's funny. And she's got a lot to say about this perfect little comedy. We had a grand old time talking about this movie over Zoom and several drinks. So now I bring you my conversation with Jamie Bradley about the Coen Brothers 1987 comedy, Raising Arizona. And I am joined today by Jamie Bradley. Jamie, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I've been I've been a little nervous, I'll be honest. Is that no, 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 come on, come on. <laughs> you've really done dozens. Have. You've done dozens of episodes of your podcast. You're you're I have no point. I have and and but my podcast is is very dumb. <laughs> it's not though. <laughs> my, <laughs> my podcast is it's about hot people and it's just me and a friend sitting around. But this podcast is about like actually talking about films, which are can be quite serious, but we are talking about one of the funniest films. So it doesn't, you know. We are talking about one of the funniest movies ever. Today we're talking about Raising Arizona. And let me tell you how happy I was. I don't know. We we talked about this months ago, I think. Yeah, we so we did. We talked about this several months ago. I want to say it was February. It was pre- it was the Mardi Gras party at at Becky and Michael's house. Michael, who is our our podcast uh, our producer, <laughs> Papa, yeah, yeah our podcast producer, daddy. Mm-hmm. podcast daddy. Um, he and his his fiance, um, nice little reference there, uh, had that. a party. Yeah, yeah, had a party at their house, and this is where. I think many, many hours into all kinds of fun Mardi Gras festivities, you and I were like, we should do this. We should talk about Raising Arizona. And then it's been just us trying to find time to do it. So I'm very glad it's happening now. I am too. I am too. And I'm so glad you were to talk about Raising Arizona. I don't even know where to start with this movie. I know. Before we get into it, tell me your history with this movie. When did you first see it? When did you first? I imagine you fell in love with it because this is one of your favorite movies. So what's your history with it? I have many like very tender anecdotes, I think, that will that will come out in the, the course of this talking about this this very cockamamie funny movie. But for me, I remember distinctly we went to 49 and more, which was the video store in Liberty, Texas, in town. And I remember like us seeing the trailer for this movie when I was really little, when it was coming out on on video. So I had to have been literally like four years old. And seeing the the trailer for it and the advertisements for it, knowing that we didn't ever go to the movies, we lived really far out in the country in a trailer house, and there was just something about it where I remember this movie being just like hyped up, and we were all so pumped. And so I remember when this movie came out on VHS, like it was like a thing. Like we went into town, rented Raising Arizona, and then it just became for all time like a family movie. So. We watched it as a family. We quoted it. I was telling you before this, I watched it last night. First of all, it's one of the most quotable movies of all time. But second, it's just like things kept happening. And I was like, God, this is just woven into the fabric of my childhood and family. Like anytime we drop something, one of us would be like, mind don't cut yourself, Mordecai. You know, like just all the quotes. Yeah, like that Buford's a sly one. Like just anytime someone would do something stupid, there was... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. You take that diaper off your head and put it back on your sister. Yeah. So it's just, it's just like a part of my life. Like it's almost like I don't remember a time when it didn't exist um, because I was so young when we watched this movie and it just connected with my trashy ass family. <laughs> <laughs> was it West Texas? No. So we didn't grow up okay. in West Texas. Okay. Um, I thought it might be sort of a regional thing because of course this this movie takes place in Arizona. So yes, no, it it wasn't that as much as I will say I I grew up in a trailer and I think there was truly something about it where, 
And I was watching it last night and just going, I love, one thing I loved about this movie was that their trailer is like, actually, it's cute. Like it's, <laughs> it's quirky. It's clean. Um, I think in a lot of, um, in a lot of, I guess, pop culture, you're immediately just disgusting trash if you live in a trailer. And in this movie, yes, they're poor. Yes, it, it is kind of a funny scenario that they're living in, but it, it's sympathetic and it's reverent and they're, I don't know, like it, it's sad when the trailer gets trashed in the middle of the movie. Like, like something is awry. It isn't just that these people have a, a horrible lifestyle. I don't know. So I, I think there was something about that that connected to me um, mm -hmm. as a little kid. So Yeah, they are uh, of the lower class, I suppose. And I only yeah. mean that economically. Right. But it, well. it's a very it's very sympathetic to them. Well, oh, yeah, they're they're horrible criminals. But they, they do kidnap a child before the opening credits even roll. OK. Right. And one of them is a career criminal. Right. The yeah. other's a policeman. <laughs> yeah. Um, Twice decorated. So it kind of evens out. Right. See. Oh, yeah. I, I, this this it. could very easily devolve into just you and I. Just quoting. quoting. Because. Yeah. I'm drinking wine and I rarely drink, but I felt we needed a little levity if we're talking yes. about raising Arizona. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'm drinking um little little tequila sunrise right now. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. So yeah, this this thing could go off road really easily and we could just be throwing quotes at one another for the next hour and that'll be the podcast. But and frankly, I'll, I'll try to keep it. <laughs> you'll have to deal with that, dear listeners. <laughs> Let's try to keep it between the ditches here. Okay, okay. Okay, so I, I have a very uh, a similar experience with this movie. This was one of the movies I remember. It came out in 1987, mm -hmm. and my parents, we had a VCR in the late 80s, and I remember we had this movie with a few other movies on the same tape, but I never watched any of those other movies because they weren't Raising Arizona. Uh, right. Much has been said about how this movie is sort of a live-action Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah. And this is my introduction into the Coen Brothers yeah. It was their second film. I think their first one came out maybe four years prior to this. Yeah. Totally different movie. Totally very. different in tone. That's very much intentional. They they mm -hmm. wanted to do ex the exact opposite of Blood Simple mm -hmm. on this one. And uh, they did. And they made one of the funniest movies ever. And of course, later on in their careers, they became known for, I mean, they, they genre hop all over the place. They, yeah. anything, they're, they're, they're some of my favorite filmmakers. Anything yeah. they try to do, they, they easily do it, or it, they make it look easy anyway. Right, right. But this was their first comedy, and it's not their most celebrated comedy. I suppose that would go to Big Lebowski, maybe Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I mean, and even Fargo is, I mean, Fargo to me is like their most celebrated film, and sure. it's very funny, but it's, you know, if you watch that movie, I, I almost very tempted last night to watch it after this, because this movie is just... I love the Looney Tunes reference because it is zany. Like it is nonstop madcap slapstick. <laughs> it is. And when there is violence, it's very cartoony. Cartoony. There's twice in the film where someone gets uppercutted and then you realize they flew 20 feet. Yes. They're, they're 20 feet away from the guy that just punched them. So yeah, it's, it's all played with a wink and a nudge. I mean, the, just the violence alone at exploding uh, Leonard Smalls, the bounty hunter at the end, which I, I honestly forgot about until I was watching it last night, but just that beautiful moment of him exploding in his boot, his like severed foot. <laughs> and it's adorable. It's hilarious. You Let know? me tell you what a psychopath 12-year-old uh, me was. I remember, <laughs> and this was before DVD. This was not digital. So this is on a VHS tape. I remember pausing it at the exact moment when he explodes uh, so you could see just you to could see if there was actually something there that blew up and there is there's a dummy that they exploded oh my god i'm assuming they didn't blow up randall no. Cobb. randall Cobb. <laughs> he lives but yeah, yeah he they lives. actually blew up a thing with you know like i guess it was a dummy that's great yeah, yeah. well and even during that fight he just does a uh, high does a double take and spits a tooth in his face you know which is also very cartoony um, yeah, there's just so many wonderful moments. Uh, one of my favorite, when you talk about sort of the cartooniness of it, the pacing of the chase scene, the big chase scene through the like house and the grocery store and the neighborhoods and all of that stuff. Um, that was always one of my 
absolute favorite scenes as a kid and watching it last night as a, as an adult. And, and I was watching it with my boyfriend and he had seen the movie before, but it's probably, you know, it, he doesn't have the same affinity for it that we do. So he wasn't sitting there quoting it, you know, every five seconds, like I was really obnoxiously. I did that um, to my wife too. Yeah. <laughs> right. But he was like, Oh, this is, and you know, just watching someone watch that scene for the first time uh, or, or, you know, the first time that they're really like cognizant of being right. watched, watching it was so funny because he was like crying, gasping. There's a part in that scene where, High lands in a yard. He thinks he's safe. There's a dog in the yard. Oh no! Which is very Looney Tooney. The dog chases him. The dog breaks loose, and the dog is chasing him. Ha ha ha! Well, then a pack of dogs slowly <laughs> form. So as the scene crawls on, there's just this pack of like twenty dogs running in the end through a grocery store, through someone's house, through the streets. Um, all manner of dogs, big and big and small, and like he was just cry laughing because it's just so, and then they take out the one of the guys that's chasing him it's just I, I, I'm, I'm rambling about it but it's it's absolutely pitch perfect comedy in every every bit and then the end cap is him picking up the huggies like he he this all yeah this like Rube Goldberg device <laughs> yeah exactly he hits him with a haymaker like a, a, a right hook as a matter yes. of fact without even looking at him yeah I mean, my favorite line as a child was, son, you got a panty on your head. <laughs> Which, by the way, I, I heard that line delivered again last night in another film or another. Um, have you been watching Fargo, the television show? No, I haven't. But do they, do they call back to that? There's every season of it is loaded Different. with with uh, quotes from Coen Brothers films and, oh. and references. So if you're a Coen Brothers uh, film fan to watch the show, you realize, oh, that's from Oh Brother Warthow. That's kind of neat. That's and then cool. sure enough, there was someone that robbed some people with a pantyhose over her head. Uh-huh. And someone was like, ma'am, you got a panty on your head. Yeah. <laughs> That's so good. Right. They, they throw it all in. Yeah. I highly I recommend that. that show. But anyway, so I guess we'll give the elevator pitch for the film. It takes yes. place in Arizona. We've got a police officer named Ed, short for Edwina. <laughs> who marries a fellow named H.I. McDonough. You can call him high. He's a career criminal. He keeps getting caught. In fact, that's how they met. They get married. They start their life together. They try to have kids. They find out that they cannot have children due to biological reasons. You see, her insides are a rocky place where his seed could find no purchase. Yeah. So they decide to kidnap one of the quote-unquote Arizona quints and all manner of nonsense ensues. It's just wacky. And I think this is where the Coen brothers, they're noted for their screaming fat man trope. A lot of their (laughs) films have bellowing fat men. And this was the first film they did with John Goodman. And he's about half of the scenes he's in devolve into him just bellowing and screaming. And it's just delightful. It's my favorite I mean, he's obviously amazing as Walter Subcheck in in Big Lebowski. That's where I feel like you know he really, really uh, comes into his his perfect uh, Coen Brothers own. But knowing this is his first film and sort of watching, and maybe this sounds a little flowery, but it's like you can almost watch them falling in love with this character actor because there are just so many moments that they let him have that, you know, and rewatching it last night, there's this one quote that I did not remember at all that we are still like my boyfriend and I were quoting it this morning and laughing, but he's driving in the car. So basically Gail and and his brother Ev have broken out of the pen and Mm -hmm. they go to stay with high and Ed. So they are on the lamb. John Goodman's character is the smarter of the two, which is not saying much. No, Not saying much. And the way that he um, postures and just the the words that he uses, and he uses this very flowery, almost biblical language, often sometimes incorrectly. And there's this moment where, you know, they sort of decide that, you know, they're going to steal the baby and they're going to go rob a bank in LaGrange, this Hayseed Bank. And they decide that that's what they're going to do. And so the brothers are, are driving and just Don Goodman's character, just apropos of nothing, just goes, I love driving. <laughs> I love to drive. I love I that. Love. Boy, you sure said something there, brother. I love that. That's I exactly love how 
low IQ, white trash, have conversations. That's exactly how their conversations go. It's like that tree sure is far away. Hell yeah, man. Man. That's right. What? (laughs) Well, followed immediately by (laughs) that baby. He smiled at me and it's just (laughs) watching them fall in love with this baby that they're kidnapping. Um, Just they bungle everything, but just watching that moment with the John Goodman character, you're like, this is the Coen brothers. Basically they are definitely like actors, directors, you know, they, they, you can tell that everyone in that movie is having a fucking blast and they write to everyone's strengths and they let people play. And it's just, it's super fun. And you can just tell like they built, started building that relationship with John Goodman in that movie. And I just absolutely adore it. And it seems like this was their, one of their comedic tropes is repetition. Just keep repeating mm-hmm. something. And even before the opening credits, the, the opening sequence in this movie is one of the most all-time epic. Iconic. Just yeah. so great. By the time the title card comes up, I'm just I'm in. I'm yes. absolutely in. Yes. And even before before the title card comes up, there's that character who we never see. He's always just off screen who keeps reminding Ed to not forget things. Mm-hmm. When she's fingerprinting high, don't forget his fingers, Ed. Uh-huh. When she's photographing, don't forget your profile, Ed. When she's about to marry, hi, don't forget your bouquet, Ed. There's always that guy right <laughs> yeah. off, the, right off the side of the screen, reminding her. It's like that's just great. And the the thing that really struck me watching it is, you know, I, and I think it t- it ties back to my memories of what I loved about it as a child, like watching it as an adult. Um, and I've watched it a lot as an adult, but watching it like yesterday, <laughs> well, it's really really fresh. Right. right. Um, my memories of it as a child are definitely in different, in little like sort of segments and vignettes. And that's really how the movie is. It's just one sort of perfect comedy nugget just tacked on, you know, and, and there are a few like kind of quiet spaces and moments and they're really important. And they use that in really smart ways. Like his dreams are when high is having sort of these prophetic dreams. Those are kind of slower moments that they let them have his letter. Um, his, yeah, when he's writing his letter. Mm-hmm. Um, but there aren't a lot, there's not a lot of like wasted time or space. There's not a lot of, there just really aren't a lot of moments where there aren't dialogue or music that's being used as like a filling all space kind of device, which is mm-hmm. really interesting. And so my memory of it is like that. Like I, I th- when I think of this movie, I think of the chase that I just described. I think of the brilliant sort of the swingers swinger foreman couple coming over dot and uh dot why am i forgetting his name it's not is it uh glenn 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 and dot which mm-hmm. francis mcdormand and sam mcmurray coming over so good their brood of just trashy <laughs> trashy children one of them wearing like a bad badge of uh yeah i don't know yeah just sort of this missing an eye like it just so yeah, the great. little girl with yeah. it with the eye patch with yeah eye, it's not even a patch it's literally like a it's just fresh, a bandage yeah. Fresh, yeah dirty bandage um and yeah it's just so great it's like so there's that that scene you never really see, you never see francis mcdormand's character again and it's one of the most iconic probably 10 minutes i guess on film to me she's wonderful every not a wasted line no not a wasted line it is a clinic in just comedy perfection and you know and she's the star of blood simple like you just said and that movie couldn't be this slower sort of neo-noir dark moody kind of thing and Mm -hmm. then letting her just go like i said just this love letter to all these comedic actors basically like she just goes fucking nuts in this movie and they let her and everything she says is absolutely perfect and quote. Like you said, she's only in the movie for about 10 minutes and she just steals this, the show. It's steals wonderful. The show. And yeah. look, this movie stars Nicolas Cage, by the way, who, mm-hmm. I mean, your mileage may vary with Nicolas Cage. I mean, <laughs> there's nothing we could say here that hasn't been said about the guy before. Right. Maybe not the most uh, dynamic actor with the most right. range, but when he's cast right, He's he's perfect. And this is the yardstick by which I measure all roles that Nicolas Cage takes. He is absolutely, he is H.I. McDonough. And, you know, I was thinking the same thing when watching it last night. I was like, you know, it's almost this generation. He's having kind of his Keanu resurgence in some ways. Like he's, he's you know, sure. viral star to the Gen Zers. People, you know, have pillows with his face on him. And he's this sort of 
caricature of himself and he doesn't do him himself any favor. <laughs> it's like he, he definitely, you know, wears the Superman jacket and acts, acts a fool a little bit, but watching this movie, I had the same feeling that you just described where I'm like, this is, this is perfection. Like the fact that he didn't win an award or, you know, like people don't talk about this movie as being as perfect as, as it could be. And I, I know that they wrote the role for Holly Hunter. I don't know if they wrote this role for him, he was relatively unknown. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. A lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, he was a so Coppola I mean, cousin. Back yeah. Then. Yeah. I think he'd been in like, um, what's that, that one horror movie though? He was like in a vampire movie. Yeah. He ate like a cockroach in that movie. I yeah. remember that. That's all I remember from that. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. 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 He was like sidekick number two, nepotism hire. <laughs> and, right. And this movie, you're just like, holy shit. This is, I mean, his narration starts and ends the film and it's just, there isn't a moment where it's not believable that, that he isn't this character, um, which is great. So you said they wrote the role for Holly Hunter. Is that yes, right? That makes did. me happy. That makes yeah. me happy. She's, she's so fantastic in this. Just so many iconic scenes. Don't you cuss around him. Don't you it's, cuss it's, around him. <laughs> and then the bursting out and the crying out of nowhere. Just about I to love say, him so much. <laughs> I love him so much. That is my, when she did that last, uh, I. Yeah. My wife she, looked at me the other night when we rewatched this and she uh, said, that's me with every dog. Basically, <laughs> and that's true. That's that's well, I can vouch for that. The thing that is so beautiful is that Holly Hunter, and this is true of her. She she, on the other hand, no one could say that she, the woman doesn't have range. She's a phenomenal actress. She can do drama, comedy, you know, interchangeably. But she does both in this movie. And you know, I kind of forgot how how tender. Even this movie, this movie is cartoonish and absurd, and still at the end. Oh yeah. wow, that last scene. A, yeah. When they return has, when they return Nathan Jr. Well, and even before that, so there's a scene in the car where, you know, it's at this point the out the the, the baby has been stolen from the people that stole the baby. Right, the breakup um, scene, right? Yeah, yeah, the breakup scene and you know, she's she's put her cop uniform back on uh to go take care of business and you know, get this baby and you know, maybe wield her her power as a, you know, as a person of the law. And she's driving with high in the, the passenger seat and talking about, you know, really essentially tears streaming down her face, but that very quiet, very real moment where she's just talking about how like she realizes that they don't deserve this baby. And she's been so resolute. She's the person that sets this whole crime in motion just out of desperation. And so it's just really, really cool to see an actor that gets to go from madcap zany uh, absurdity and literally probably the scene before and right after <laughs> because the scene immediately after that is their confrontation with the bounty hunter and it's just lunacy and so it, yeah it's just she's she's incomparable she's so good in this this movie talking about that it made me think of the last scene though when when they returned the yes. baby and it's at the end where this movie really shows that it's got a lot of heart because yes. it's been madcap. It's been zany and loony. It's live action Looney Tunes. And Nathan Arizona's character is just this bellowing asshole who just screams profanity at everyone. And then he turns into the heart of the movie at the end. Yeah. And he starts talking about his wife who every time he references her or talks to her, he denigrates her. He treats her like shit. Yeah. And then at the end, when he talks about what she means to him, it's, yeah, I almost got a little bit choked up the other night watching. It was like, wow, that's he totally. I forgot how that guy just totally turns oh, yeah. everything around. Incredible. And he's got some of the most memorable comedic lines of the oh. film. The whole scene with him and the FBI and the authorities and him that screaming. Is- Sir, we have an indication you were born Nathan Huffines. Is this correct? Yeah, I changed my name. What of it? But can you give us an indication why? Yeah. Would you buy furniture at a store called Unpainted Huffhines? All right, I'll get to the point. Was the child Are wearing these... anything when he was abducted? Nobody sleeps naked in this house. I am asking the wearing... questions, officer. If we're going to put an APB out, I need a description. Just we're wearing... better trained to intervene in a crisis situation. What was he wearing? A dinner jacket. What do you think? He's wearing his damn jammies. child was wearing his jammies. You happy? Do you have any disgruntled employees? Hell, they're all disgruntled. I ain't running a damn daisy farm. What did the my motto say? is do it my way or watch your butt. So what you think it might have been an employee? Oh, don't make me laugh. Without my say-so, they wouldn't piss with their pants on fire. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. 
every there's not a wasted line much like the francis mcdormand scene every single it is so quick i think my favorite was when he was talking to the press and the guy says sir what do you what do you say about the the reports that your son has been abducted by ufos that's (laughs) that's when i knew that these guys were comedy geniuses because nathan looks at him dead serious don't print that son his mama reads that she's just gonna lose all hope She's going to lose all hope. It's so subtle. <laughs> and I think that that's a great point. Like that line with, with lesser directors and a, a lesser cast, like this movie is just a fucking Kevin James. It's Paul Blart, you know, it's sure. like, or sure. honestly, it's like, it's, it's a product of the eighties with an art filter just because, you know, there's, there's tons of movies from the eighties where, you've got the chase scene, you've got the idiotic, you know, somebody strapped to the roof of a car, you know, like all the kind of tropes of, of just wackiness. But I love that when you watch this movie, especially like in 2020, knowing like what the Coen brothers body of all their work looks like and, and knowing like what they put out right before this, it's really them sort of almost satirizing like, okay, we're going to make a fucking funny eighties movie too, but we're going to do it with a shitload of heart we're going to add subtle, hilarious comedy, like the line you just said, which is really what their their comedic style in later films, like Big Lebowski is ha-ha hilarious, but short of, you know, a few characters in that, there are so many just very subtle lines that you kind of catch with every rewatch, and this movie has those two nestled in, like, the madcap, absurd moments as well, right. which is... is it's just neat to see like the kernel of that evolution of their style. I think you just hit the nail on the head with what what works with the Coen brothers. The thing is, their movies don't make tons of money. Their movies aren't blockbusters by any means. Fargo, I think, was probably their biggest film, probably their biggest moneymaker. I'm, I'm not sure about that. I haven't checked the numbers. But they are always critically acclaimed, almost always. Every now mm-hmm. and again, they make a Lady Killer's. But almost yeah. always their, their films are critically acclaimed, but they don't make tons of money in the theater and they become cult films. And I yeah. think it's because they've got such rewatchability. It's yeah, there's so many subtle little things that they do that you don't notice when you're sitting in a theater watching it for the first time. It's the second, the third, the fourth time you watch it when you start realizing, wait yeah. a minute, there's a pattern here. That's very clever yeah. what they did. And that makes yeah. the few people that did find it, not to say that these are tiny little indie filmmakers. I mean, these are these guys are millionaires <laughs> many times over. Right. In 87, they were, though. In 87, they absolutely were. Yeah. And honestly, in 87, you know, I think there's something so special about them where it's like, I don't, I don't know your upbringing, but it's like my, my family was excited about this movie. <laughs> you know, right. like my, my family was excited also about Ninja Turtles. You okay. know, like. <laughs> yeah. My family, by the way, are very conservative, very Christian. And yeah, yeah. they love this movie. In fact, but I think it's because of this movie. I think this was their Coen Brothers gateway. They're big yeah. Coen Brothers fans. Now you're not going to just catch them watching inside the and Davis. I don't think. <laughs> Right. They know who the Coen brothers are and they are not movie people. Well, and you know, I think it's because of this movie. Absolutely. When I was going to say this movie works for the same reason to me that like the Simpsons works, you can watch this movie and on the surface, it's very, very funny. And there's a lot of like in your face, funny stuff that is objectively hilarious. And then there is, like you said, on rewatch, a lot of things where you're like, Oh, there's, the guy in the background are like, Oh, there's this tiny little, you know, mm-hmm. even just the, I remember watching it last night, like the set set decoration, all of just the, how perfect everything looks. They're funny little Easter eggs and nuggets sort of hidden everywhere. Like in these little tableaus, like in the grocery store and yeah. the, the store that they, the convenience store that they rob later. High cellmate <laughs> is one of those guys, the guy on the yeah. upper bunk. Uh huh. When you're supposed to be listening to High's voiceover, yeah. that guy's talking. And if you just tune out what High is okay. saying, you're not going to do this the first time you watch the movie. You're paying right. attention to, to High's VO. But yes. if you pay close attention to what his cellmate is saying, it's fucking ridiculous and hilarious. It's so dumb. But it it's fades so down. It the, the, the audio starts fading down. But yeah. if you can just really pay attention to it, it's just, ah. Uh, it's so good. I wrote, I wrote down a couple of notes. One, one of the things I love, I want to go back to the ending again. Okay. Um, your, 
because your assessment is so true. Like this movie is takes you on this absurd journey. And then there is this beautiful moment where high and Ed decide after everything, like she's going to stick to her guns of, of this, you know, my monologue she really has in the, in the car. They return the baby. They defeat the, you know, wicked bounty hunter. The prisoners decide to crawl back into the hole and go back, go which back into, into prison, which is so funny. So ridiculous. Um, and that whole scene, that birth, the birthing of them from, from the ground, it great in and of itself. But, you know, and, and then Nathan Arizona has this great monologue at the end, you know, and then what I love the most is they brought this baby back and he, Nathan Arizona just goes, all right, we'll just go back out the way he came in. And then he just leaves he, the baby. He just leaves the baby in the crib. He just trusts him. Light, he just turns the light out. Doesn't tell his wife. Like, I mean, it's just, well, well his wife was out of town, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what I mean? Right. It's just yeah. like, he doesn't, it's, it's just not so a big deal to him. It's just kind it, of mundane. It's almost like going to make a cup of coffee. Like, Oh, yeah. here are the people that kidnapped my son. <laughs> But at least he did mention, I do know people, you know, yeah. I know people. And yes, yes, he yes, knew yes. that these were people that he could trust. They didn't bring yes. the kid back just to take him again, especially no, after no, that no. conversation. It's very beautiful. But Wonderful just, writing. We were cracking up. We were just cracking up, though. It's like that final moment of, wait, he's just going <laughs> to yeah. walk out and leave this baby in the crib. He's like, all right, this is settled. <laughs> it's yeah. like it was like a, a transaction at Unpainted Arizona. His it's uh, the largest <laughs> unpainted furniture. Uh, one of my favorite lines, I'm going to quote. I know the one. Well. Yeah, you know I was exactly. About to, I was about to quote it too, but you go ahead. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So in that same interrogation, again, every line is funny. Every Everything that the straight man FBI agents say to him is just a setup for his punchline. Yeah, wonderful writing. I don't know if you've ever read <laughs> any of their screenplays. I haven't. The Coens seem very... Tarantino-esque. It's all there. Everything that you see, everything that you see on screen is in that. Big Lebowski, those scenes at the bowling alley where you've Mm -hmm. got the dude and Walter and Donnie, and they're all talking over each other, and it seems very Mm ad-lib. None of that shit's ad-libbed. Every bit of that is on the page. And uh, the Raising Arizona script is pretty much the same way. These guys are apparently pretty precious about their yeah. their dialogue as, as well they should be i mean right well, no ad-libbing com- uh, actor is going to come up with something that good well and it's it's so funny to me and i i have not read it but i'd heard that i knew that about big lebowski that um you know i i've seen like the comparison or like youtube videos of them mm-hmm. showing exactly like what you were just saying that that double speak and talking over each other but i think that that's going back to what i was saying earlier about how they are such sort of actor or directors for actors, actors, directors, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because often, and I, and I've acted in things. I'm not, I'm definitely not a professional, um, but you always are fighting the urge to want to add lines and like make a character your own. And, you know, and often in a script that is just not there for you at all. And so the fact that they take the time to write, such an absurd, stupid line, like, I love driving, <laughs> which just sounds so stupid. But it's like, that said so much about that character. You just yeah. did some world building. You told me exactly what those dudes are like one-on-one. And one of the things that you would almost certainly never see an actor ad lib, something this funny, is right there at the beginning during that opening sequence when High proposes. Mm-hmm. First off the line, I'm walking in here on my knees, a free man. Yes. That's funny. Yes. That's funny. That's funny. But then he looks over at the con who Ed is photographing and he's yeah. like, howdy, Kurt. I mean, and that's right there in the script. That's, so I, 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 there are not many actors would have ad-libbed something that funny. You know, talking about the dialogue itself, they took great pains to you know, I've, I've read that they took great pains to make sure that there were plenty of indicators of, the, of their education level. So for each character mm-hmm. saying they some did. ignorant things, yeah. uh, but then also trying to think what, what media would they be influenced by? So yes. magazines in the Bible. Magazines in the and Bible love, were high. Yeah, that was for um, high. That was, which, yeah. 
Wonderful. It's so true. It's so that's, beautiful. That's next level screenwriting. That's yeah. It's like how again I'm gonna bring up Tarantino again. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> but the way he'll create the character and then talk to the actor about their backstory, like just yeah. a huge, long, involved backstory that never comes up once in the film, just right. so that the actor knows who their character is. Which is again, I mean, it's a gift. next level. You, yeah. You could next level. I, I, it struck me. I love the scene where <laughs> they bring Nathan Jr. home to the trailer and he's holding him out full arm's length and just pointing him at different objects in the mm-hmm. house. And he points to this, that shitty couch that everyone had in the 80s. Yes, and it's like, they did. this is oh, the divan. Wow. <laughs> the divan. So <laughs> the great. Divan. That's uh, twice. You know what? I've only heard that piece of furniture referred to by its proper name in two Coen Brothers movies. Never yeah. in real life, never in any other film. Uh, the other one being Hail Caesar. And, you know, t- talking about kind of what I was saying in the very beginning, uh, probably something that resonated with me about this film as a child, um, aside from the fact that it's just wildly funny, is that I I think that something, you know, growing up kind of poor in a trailer, you know, you don't see yourself that way. You don't think of yourself as like living. It it wasn't until I was older, like until I was like in junior high, high school where I was like, Oh, that's what poor people, (laughs) poor people live in. But I was like, self-conscious about this. Yeah. Like when you're five, you're just like, this is my house and this is a van and you know, you have pride (laughs) in your home and you like, yeah. And so there was just something about it that, I connected to as a kid, probably not realizing that I was, and then it just grew in my heart, you know, over time as I got older, because on rewatch, you're like, it's just this very subtle thing, but that, you know, them, them living there isn't, is handled in such a like dignified way to me in a strange, it's, it's hard to sort of articulate, but it's, they have so many other shortcomings. Like that isn't one of them. <laughs> I guess you know. No, that's that's absolutely <laughs> true. Nice. The, the the movie does not judge these people for their social status. Yeah. It's it's the yeah. other characters in the film, maybe. But yeah. even then, it's like the people that, like the parole board during again during the opening sequence again yeah. going back to the repetition. Okay yeah. then. And then it turns out <laughs> that's the guy that marries them. And when they get married, right. yeah. okay then. That's so great. So great. so great. So great. <laughs> I'm trying to see if there's, oh, yeah, I, what else do you have? I wrote down, and again, this is just, there's so many great Gail lines. Basically, Gail is the smarter of the two brothers. Um, from the moment that he gets in the house, he sort of notices all the little subtle touches. Like they have a banner that says, welcome home, son. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of them can really answer all of his questions quite right about when they had this baby, he's starting to put something together that something's a little fishy and also game recognized game. He's a criminal. He's probably a criminal activity has happened. Um, which I do love because these characters could easily be just the stupidest characters, but he has a level of criminal intelligence somewhat that is, he's not that good at it because he keeps getting caught and the bank robbery scene shows you just how stupid they are. But I do love when he's putting together truly that Ed is not the parent or the, the mother of the child. And his line is, why ain't you breastfeeding? You appear to be capable. And I just (laughs) absolutely love. You don't breastfeed him. The child grows up to resent you. That's what Doc Schwartz told us anyway. Doc Schwartz, their, their shrink in the, in prison, which they keep bringing up, which is just so funny. Um, but yeah, I just love all those little layers because I mean, that line in and of itself is just funny, but, but again, it's, it's character building. It's, it's characterization. Yeah. And the, these morons have internalized deeply internalized all of the like, psychological court mandated psychology. They took all the wrong lessons from what doc Schwartz was trying to teach them. And I, right, I think that's exactly. just wonderful. Going back to the, my, my point about having to rewatch the movie to get all the stuff. Cause I'm just not smart yeah. enough to catch it all the first time. Oh, One thing that, no, that really stood out to me on this rewatch, which was, look, I've seen this movie dozens of times between yes. 1988 and probably 1993. 
dozens and dozens yeah. of times and sporadically Same. since then. But it's been a it's been several years since I watched it again. So yeah. I watched it with yeah. I watched it again the other night and I noticed that the bank robbery scene, the first guy, mm-hmm. the guy that gives him a little back sass, the guy that's like, Well, which is it, young yeah. feller? That's the hayseed with the red hat. Yeah. Which I love. They put him in charge. He's the monitor. They say, all right, we're going to leave. But he does the thing like they did with the other guy. Like, I'm going to come back in five minutes. They don't explicitly say it. But I watched this movie finally for the first time with closed captioning on because I really wanted to catch everything this time. Mm -hmm. There was one line in this movie that I never quite understood what the fuck John Goodman's character, Gail, was saying. I never quite understood it. The last Uh thing he yelled at the crowd before he left, Uh and it's anyone caught bipedal in five wears his ass for a hat. And I had no idea what he was saying as a kid, but anyone standing up as a biped in five minutes, which means (laughs) we're going to come back. Which means we're coming back in five minutes and anyone right. still standing up is dead. Well, uh-huh. then we're supposed to forget all of that. These guys are just yeah. on the ground and they've been told to freeze and that's all we know. And the, the hayseed and the red hat is the monitor and he's going to make sure uh-huh. all of y'all stay on the ground, right? So then the whole thing happens. Right. Minutes go by in the movie and there's a chase sequence with Leonard Smalls, the, the baby mm-hmm. hunter. And as they run through, that the chase goes through that bank. Everyone is still on the ground. Yeah. And then you hear this 80-yard line from that hayseed, best lay down on the ground, young Missy. Like, <laughs> that guy is still, he's yeah. still monitoring that room. <laughs> and I did not catch it the first dozen I times I watched it. Uh, these guys are world-class screenwriters. They come up with these characters and they could just be vessels for the dialogue that moves the plot along, but they're not. They're well thought out. They're, they're very, very meticulously. Yeah. They're there. Uh, You know, just the fact that Gail and Evel think alike to ask that question. Yeah. Do those blow up into funny shapes? Just little, little things like that. Little things. ah, It's chef's kiss. Chef's kiss, indeed. Well, and I was going to say too. I have, I have a, I have a little bit of a like sad personal story about this. But this movie, sad and happy um, at the, the same time. But very much like the ending to this movie. So go ahead. Yes, it's exactly. Keeping. It's in exactly. Keeping. We need so to like talk said, about the ending, by the way, before we're done here. But go ahead. Okay. Well, I was going to say, you know, so this movie, like I said, it has such a place in my heart, just from a a young age. It's probably one of the first movies I ever remember loving. And my whole family loved it. And we were excited. Yeah. And it was like a family film, but then rewatching it, it's like, this is not really a family film. There's a Uh, fuck in there. Yeah. 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 There's, there's definitely some, some, you know, untoward things. It's Mm -hmm. literally about kidnapping. (laughs) Yeah. This is a movie Uh, where twice a, child an infant is in a baby carrier on top of a car <laughs> that l- drives away with the baby on top and the baby hits the ground like this yes. happens twice in the movie the baby yeah. by the way is unscathed if you guys haven't yeah. watched it and you've listened this far for some reason <laughs> right the baby's fine the baby's but totally please, fine go ahead no go ahead. so what i was gonna say is it, it has such a place like in my in my heart But I'd gone like you, like I'd probably watched a ton in college and then just didn't really like, you know, grew up, got busy, wasn't just regularly watching it. And in 2010, I got some bad news in the middle of the day about my mom found, you know, had to leave work, pack a bag, drive through the night from Tennessee to Texas. But before I did that, I basically just sort of got this bad news, was at my job, ran off, ran to my house and my mother ended up passing away. But before that happened, when I got to my house, I was just sort of standing there stunned knowing like, I need to pack, I need to get my car, I need to drive um, just now and leave. But I was just sort of stunned. And I just sat on the floor and I got my DVD of Raising Arizona. And I just watched and I was like, I will pack after Raising Arizona is over. And I still to this day don't know that is not like something I normally do. That isn't, you know, it, w- it wasn't even like it was her favorite movie or something like that. It was just in that moment, my brain was like, my lizard brain was just like, this movie makes you so happy. Yeah, it's it comfort is, food. Get this. It's comfort food. Yes. Yeah. And as I was watching it last night, I was like literally 
had had a really long, hard day at work, knew that I had to come do this today, not had to, was delighted to, but I was like, I've got to watch this movie. And it was almost sort of like a thing on my to-do list. And like the credits start, you hear that, the familiar, that you know, banjo. <sighs> Uh, yodeling. So good. The yodeling. We haven't even gotten into the score. I haven't yeah, gotten yeah. into the score. I'm yeah. eating my mashed potatoes, literal comfort food after this long day. And I just teared up. Like I, it just has that effect on me. Like this, uh, like I said, I was a little nervous to come here and talk about this because I'm not a film scholar. I'm not even a Coen brothers. I'm not scholar. either. No, no. And I yeah. know you're not. I mean, you, it wasn't, I wasn't intimidated by you, but just, you know, talking about the Coen brothers, they're so well-loved, they're so well-researched. And then after I finished watching the movie, I was like, I could talk about this movie for days. Like it just has such a place in my heart. And I know that that's how other people feel about it too. Like it, you don't need to be a scholar. And I think that's where the Coen brothers really hit. Like you don't have to, you can study them on that level because it, it is such craft. Like, yeah, there's a lot of meat on that bone if you want to get into it. But. Yes, but at the same time, my family in a trailer in 1987 is like, and your family, you know, who probably weren't sitting down and dissecting Fellini, <laughs> you know, at the time. No, they weren't. We're, we're just loving it, you know, and and I think that's where it's just a movie like this is just so timeless and special and. And fu- fucking funny. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about the ending of this movie before we wrap up. Um, yeah. By the way, is are there anything in is there anything in your notes that you really wanted to to hit on before we before we, we finish up? I my notes are basically just all the quotes we've already said. Oh, and talking, we haven't talked about the score um, and the repetition. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, the first note I wrote was. Just being, I love, love, love. Holly Hunter sings a song to the baby, and it's when you listen to the lyrics, it's the, the darkest murder dirge. It is, it is, uh, but it's beautiful too. And it's just this kind of yes, it's, just, uh, it's it's beautiful, but then also hilarious and kind of absurd that she like she would sing these, a murder ballad. Oh, she would sing a murder ballad to a baby. Yeah, but it's a very comforting that that uh, that tune is just beautiful. Yeah, this was. I'm not sure if Carter. How do you pronounce his name? Carter Burrell. Burrell. Yeah, that's a long and fruitful partnership that they've they've had with him. And yes. man, the the theme to this fucking movie with the banjo and the whistling and the yodeling and it's got uh, different segments. So I grew up kind of thinking that these were separate songs, but when you listen to it all in one sitting, it's like, no, 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 there, there's the yodeling mm-hmm. section. There's the whistling section, the, the, the banjo. Yep. It's just, it's, yep. it's hayseed music to, to borrow a term from the film itself. But uh, yeah. man, every time I hear it, yeah. I just, I just grin ear to ear. I love it so much. I'm, I know I'm going to yeah. play the, the hell out of it in this episode. I'm, I'm going to, any excuse to fade up oh. those banjos, I'm, I'm going to take. favorite moments of realizing it is is that it's it's a, there's a Muzak version playing when they're in the um in the grocery store there is and so every the double every barrel time. shotgun that has like six shots in it no one reloads <laughs> in this movie by the way but go ahead go ahead you were saying i also love that like almost every every sort of side character in that grocery store has like Looney Tunes like curlers in their hair. <laughs> just, I'm telling you, and they're almost wearing. They're like, oh, they're all all the all the side characters are like monochromatic. They're wearing like hot pink clothes or blue mm-hmm. clothes or orange clothes. Like they are, or like speaking of colors, one of my favorite things is they really build up how rural and trashy and hayseed this bank is that they're going to go rob. One of the funniest things, and maybe also another reason why my like hayseed ass loved it as a kid is just that they go into this bank 
in the 80s, rob it, and the woman totally puts in that ink cartridge that explodes. <laughs> yeah. And it's so pitch perfect. They're just like, man, these people are stupid and dumb. And it's like, yeah, even the fucking... Even those dumb hayseeds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's 87, <laughs> dude. <laughs> like, yeah. It's a fucking bank. Uh, um, just a so wonderful good. movie. Jamie, I've, we've been talking about doing this episode for the longest time, and I'm glad that we finally did it. Me too. Thank yeah. you for your patience with me. Oh, <laughs> and, yeah. of course. Of course. In fact, this, this episode came right when I needed it. It's been a long year for us all. And, and man, I really needed this episode. This was, this was so much fun. I love talking about this movie. Yes. I love any love excuse to watch it. It's <laughs> yeah. so much fun. But um, Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Everybody, check out her podcast, Hot Minute. That's hot with two T's on We Own This Town. It's fantastic. By the way, I do like your podcast. I've listened to several episodes. That's why you're here. You're you're very funny. (laughs) Thank you. um, Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Maybe we'll get into another one sometime. Hey, I like all kinds of stuff. (laughs) All right. All right. Thank (laughs) Thank you, Jamie. Take care. Bye. So yeah, that's it. That was our talk. Good talk, I think. We really like Raising Arizona, and I hope that we got that across to you. I want to thank my guest today, Jamie Bradley. Check out her podcast, Hot Minute. That's hot with two T's, which she co-hosts with Ashley Spurgeon. You can give them a follow on Instagram at Hot Minute. That's all one word. And while you're there, why not follow filmography underscore club underscore podcast too? Because why not? Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you're partial to. Please remember to leave us a review, maybe a rating. That would be nice. I'd also like to thank Michael Eads, Will Fox, and Ross Warner. Filmography Club is produced right here in scenic Nashville, Tennessee by the always hardworking folks at We Own This Town. I'm Jason. This has been Filmography Club. Thanks for listening.